Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome into the Jeff Andrea Show here on Wednesday, November 6th. And as always, thanks so much for tuning in. On today's show, I'll be talking with a pair of university students doing some research on topics of energy and cannabis. Yes, to kick off the back half of today's show, I'll be speaking with Victor Keller from the University of Victoria. He helped write a paper on this month's edition, or in this month's edition of Applied Energy Journal. And he'll join me to talk about how much power we will be consuming in BC by the year 2055. As we make the switch to electric vehicles and have less and less of a reliance on things like gas and diesel our of course reliance on the grid will increase and with that comes the need to produce more power how will we make that power and will we need to create more renewable energy sources well i'll be talking with victor in about 25 minutes to learn more about that and to end things off today cannabis may be helping canadians cope with the effects of post-traumatic stress disorder new research suggests that and now an analysis of health survey data collected by stats canada for more than 24,000 canadians Researchers from the BC Centre on Substance Use and the University of British Columbia found that people who have PTSD but do not medicate with cannabis are far more likely to suffer from severe depression and have suicidal thoughts than those who reportedly don't use cannabis, or at least that's the case over the past year. So I'll be talking more about that to end off today's show. But to begin today's program, I will follow up on yesterday's city council meeting and help fill you in on what took place. And as always, to do that, I am joined by Kamloops Mayor, Ken Christian. Mr. Mayor, thanks so much for coming in. My pleasure, Jeff. All right, so let's just start by getting right into the meat of it. I mean, the Performing Arts Center came back to uh, City Hall yesterday after the business case was presented about two weeks ago. Uh, city staff provided uh, council with more information regarding uh, background and funding options based on the Kamloops Center for Art Society business case proposal. So staff are now proposing to borrow $45 million, while the Center for the Art Society will look to fundraise at least $22 million. So council voted unanimously to support the proposed $70 million facility downtown and to have staff initiate a referendum. So Ken, uh, why do you think it's important to take this issue to the public and sort of give them this opportunity to vote? Yeah, no, the Center of the Arts was certainly the uh, prime event yesterday at Council and uh, you know I think uh, the need to take it to referendum really reflects the fact that there had been uh, in 2015 a failed attempt to uh, uh, have this approved and I think uh, we owe it to the public to allow them to weigh in on this new proposal and uh, you know I, I was certainly toying with it myself whether we would you know try to save the hundred thousand and, and uh, look at a reverse petition and then it occurred to me at least that you know we would uh, be building a building just because we didn't get enough people to say no and I would far rather that we have the assent of the electorate and we have a project that the citizens of Kamloops can get behind and they can be proud of. Uh, now, I've seen a lot of comments out there from people who say, you know, they voted on this project in 2015. Almost 54% of people voted no at that time. Uh, so, so why is council going forward with the new project at this time? I guess, like, what, what has changed over the course of four years? Well, uh, first of all, they're two different projects, uh, and they should not be confused with each other. Uh, they're funded totally different, and uh, we have moved along uh, four years, and when we ask the citizens of Kamloops what do they uh, value in our city and what do they want in our city, they consistently say uh, two things. One is that they want more uniform services, things like 
police, uh, fire, bylaws, that kind of thing. And the other thing that they consistently say is that we are lacking uh, support for the arts and culture in this city. And so, you know, when you look at that and, and you see we have an opportunity because of retiring debt, we're just about finished paying for the TCC, uh, there would be an opportunity to invest in the arts. And I think that that's a good investment, not only for the arts community, but for the business community. And it really speaks to some of the goals that this council has put in place in terms of our strategic plan, wanting Kamloops to be more livable, wanting it to be a, a city that we are, as citizens, very proud of and uh, very happy to live in and have uh, the amenities here that really will support all the things that we want to do. We, we're not going to have to chase to Vancouver or Calgary for a concert, and we are going to be able to attract uh, business that would uh, be uh, supportive of the arts, and, and uh, the hospitality industry would uh, benefit by it, as well as that vibrancy that we're looking for in downtown Camel. So, you know, I see it as a win on a number of okay. Uh, reasons and I think that um, with this uh, proposal going to referendum the public will have a chance to look at all of the information about the Arts Centre and uh, make their own informed decision. Um, do you have any advice or maybe that's not the right word message for people who think uh, you know we're gonna see some debt come off the books here um, and that's sort of the reason why maybe this project might be a little more palatable for council at this point in time right is because we're not going to see a tax increase because some debts coming off the books so it gives an opportunity to take on some new debt um, but there are people who say you know we shouldn't be taking on debt we should be maybe taking any um, added funding that can be collected and putting it into a pot for a rainy day fund or something along those lines I guess why do you think it's important to uh, you know or, or do you think it's important to have some debt on the books? I mean, there's always a reason why it's, uh, you know, reasonable to have some, you know, outstanding owing money. Uh, there's always some reason for that. So, I mean, just do you have any message for people who maybe don't want to see more debt on the books and want to see maybe a, a rainy day fund? I mean, is there one path that maybe is better for the other from your point of view? Well, you know, Jeff, what I've seen is that people that don't like the concept are going to find any kind of reason to rationalize why they would vote no. Uh, but in reality, uh, every municipality has debt and we do have rainy day funds and our fund, our finances are in good shape in Kamloops and uh, this is an opportunity where we're not obligating uh, future gas tax funding or community works funding like the last proposal had. Uh, we're not looking at uh, an increase in the taxes for the borrowing and uh, it, it strikes me that it's only going to get more expensive. Uh, we saw that with the Sandman Center where it was turned down I believe twice and eventually it was built at a cost of almost double what they could have built it originally for. So, you know, the citizens are uh, telling me that they uh, feel that this is an amenity that we're missing. And if you look at Kamloops's very proud history in terms of the tournament capital of Canada, we uh, have invested heavily in that moniker and we put in facilities here that are the envy of certainly other communities in British Columbia. Uh, but we haven't really made the same investment in arts and culture and I think that it's time. And, you know, I'm, I'm coming, I said it yesterday in council, I'm a basketball guy, I'm a water and sewer guy, but I believe uh, that this is something that is going to make a Kamloops a far better city. So are, are you hearing, I guess, the majority of people that you talk to are in favor of this sort of a project, uh, just, just generally speaking? I mean, it seems like, uh, you know, the ones who are the naysayers are always louder. Uh, just, but just from your perspective, I mean, are you hearing more people who are in favor of this type of project? 
Well, certainly yesterday uh, around town there was a buzz in terms of people in favor of it. But look, at, you know, I'm in politics, I get it. People that are opposed to something are going to reach out to me and are going to give me an earful about it. And people that are generally in favor are just going to walk by. And uh, that's uh, the role of the mayor and, and that's a mantle I'm happy to carry. But, uh, you know, uh, we have had uh, letters, we have had letters to the editor, we've had phone calls, uh, we've had emails that are opposed to this. And, uh, you know, I suspect that will continue for some time and I suspect that there'll be some kind of no movement come out of uh, you know the the community somewhere but you know there is also a yes movement uh, and the uh, Center for the Arts Society I think this time are particularly well organized uh, they're energetic uh, they have a far uh, wide reach in the community uh, there's no neighborhood that isn't represented and uh, I think that they have a, a business case that's prepared by uh, KPMG that once the community has a chance to read it and understand it, they're going to support it. Um, I also wanted to ask about the decision to go with a referendum a little bit, because uh, a referendum isn't binding by any means, right? Like, if, if majority of people say they don't want to go ahead with this project, council could still potentially make the decision to go forward with it anyway. I mean, what, what was, the, was there a reason why you chose to go with a referendum instead of something like a plebiscite? Well, there, there's a couple of reasons. One is legally, uh, if we're going to make a borrowing, uh, you know, over five years, we have to have the assent of the elect electorate. So we need to do that by one of two mechanisms. One is called a reverse petition, uh, where you get 10% of the electorate to say don't borrow, or you could have a referendum and it's simply a yes or no, and, and that way you weigh both the support for and, and against a project. Uh, the, uh, the decision of council, the unanimous decision of council, was to go to the referendum, and, and we recognize that there's a cost for that, but on a percentage of the overall cost of this project, it's minuscule. But uh, I believe it will give the community a chance to engage with this project and, and understand it and be proud of it. And uh, if that's not the case, then we'll move on to something else. But, uh, you know, in, in my estimation, this is something whose time has come. Uh, it's right now, I think, is the moniker that the uh, society is using. And uh, that is purposeful because uh, the last time this was uh, put out before the public, people weren't necessarily opposed to it. They said, not yet. And we had Nellie Dever uh, before council yesterday, and I, I thought it was uh, particularly brave of her to come and say, look, I, I was the champion of the no campaign last time, and I now believe in this project. And, and that spoke volumes to me and I think to the rest of council. Yeah, definitely an indication that some people's minds are shifting. Uh, just curious if you have any potential idea of what the, the question might look like on the referendum at this point in time. No, we've challenged our uh, corporate officer, uh, and uh, she will come up with a question and the timing and the mechanics of, of uh, the referendum, and it will likely be something in the order of, uh, do you uh, support the City of Camels borrowing $45 million for a uh, Center for the Arts? And that will likely occur sometime in, in March, but there's more detail to come. So if we're looking ahead to March, obviously no date has been picked yet, but that's sort of the rough uh, general idea or uh, area of when a vote will take place. Um, just what, I guess, does the city have to do? What is the responsibility of those who are, you know, either for or against this project between now and then to make sure that people are understanding exactly what they're voting on? Well, it's uh, just like any other municipal election, Jeff, so we will uh, have to uh, identify polls, have to do all of the advertising, have to uh, uh, run the mechanics of the election uh, and uh, make sure the integrity of the election is intact, and, and certainly our staff in ledge services are experts at this, so uh, that will be 
well taken care of. Uh, in terms of the promotion, uh, the uh, Center for the Arts uh, really will be leading in terms of that, but the uh, council will not stand back. Councillor Hunter put a motion forward yesterday that you know, we need a communication strategy for all of us, and uh, certainly that was a eight uh, nothing vote in in favor of this. So uh, it uh, was signaled to me that each and every member of Camel's Council will be out there supporting this initiative, along with members of the uh, the society. Uh, any idea when that will be uh, coming back to council for some of that information? You know, I think it'll be sooner rather than later. I suspect all of that to be nailed down before uh, we break for the Christmas season. So, you know, they have to, uh, you know, pose the question, put that to the inspector of municipalities, get the response back, and then uh, uh, firm up the date. So there are some requirements in the charter that uh, put dates around that sort of thing, and they'll come back with a, a thorough assessment, I'm sure. Uh, perfect. Um, I did want to ask you some other stuff, but we've gone on pretty long. Do you mind sticking around for uh, another few minutes here? I have a few more minutes. Yeah, sure. All right. Uh, we'll take a quick break and then we'll come back. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Welcome back here to the Jeff Andreas Show. I'm joined in studio by Kamloops Mayor Ken Christian as we discussed yesterday's council meeting. Um, all right, so Mayor Christian, uh, marathon, if you will, public meeting last night. Uh, a number of things were on the agenda there, including the issue of daycares. Uh, council did eventually move forward with a proposal for a new daycare center on McMurdo up in uh, Lower Sahali. Um, but there was some concern, I guess, from people in the neighborhood and it comes to, I guess, safety and things along those lines. So why did council decide to move forward with that project? Yeah, it was a marathon public hearing last night uh, went uh, from uh, 7 till 10.30. I think I left the uh, Valley First Lounge, but uh, the um, uh, agenda included three topics. There was a uh, uh, an industrial site out in the Dallas area. Uh, really was uh, not uh, any uh, public feedback on that. Then there was a veterinary clinic on uh, First and St. Paul. Uh, considerable uh, angst about that, a lot in and around traffic. But the biggest one was certainly this McMurdo uh, daycare uh, application. And uh, that went on for probably two hours in terms of the uh, Sagebrush Neighborhood Association being opposed to it and a number of daycare advocates being in favor of it. Uh, and it uh, was largely centered in and around uh, issues related to traffic in that McMurdo area up by uh, KSS and and uh, the School of the Arts very congested area right now and and a concern that this would simply add to the congestion and and concern about uh, safety of uh, pedestrians in that area and all very valid and and uh, then there was the uh, other side where they were uh, talking about the shortage of daycare in this community and people with uh, stories about uh, you know having uh, the inability to work because of a lack of child care facilities and uh, so uh, at the end of the evening it was a uh, seven to one vote in favor of uh, allowing that daycare to proceed and I think the developer was there he heard a lot of the concerns and and uh, he's known to me and I believe will uh, take those under advisement in terms of uh, his uh, plans going forward but uh, you know I, I think all in all uh, this will be an amenity that that neighborhood will uh, grow uh, to really enjoy and uh, it, it 
appreciate having childcare facilities right within their own community. Um, so yeah, you, like you had mentioned, a lot of the uh, people who are for this center are people who are you know maybe in desperate need, if you will, of uh, of daycare space here in the community. Uh, do you have any idea, sort of, what the the state of the problem is when it comes to a lack of daycare space here in Kamloops? Is it a, a serious issue that needs to be looked at? Well, we we know it's an issue. It's the extent of it that we're studying right now. So we have uh, uh, challenged staff to uh, look at a daycare needs uh, study in Kamloops and, and uh, help us in terms of uh, numbers of uh, facilities that are needed and the kinds of facilities. Some are infant care, some are toddlers, some are preschool, some are after school. So, you know, a lot of different classifications within the moniker daycare, right? So, uh, you know, they're going to do that analysis. But uh, this uh, particular application stems from the fact that uh, we're expanding uh, Royal Inland Hospital and where they're currently situated. Uh, their lease has been uh, ended by the Interior Health Authority. So this particular daycare provides a lot of services to the women and men working at Royal Inland Hospital. And so, you know, everything's connected, right? And, and so that if you have a shortage of nurses and they can't go to work because they can't get daycare, you have a, a problem backing up into your hospital. So everything is connected. And I, I think we need to recognize that as a community and find community-wide solutions. Uh, the concern was that these were going to be daycare spaces that would largely be used by people that were outside that neighborhood. And I don't think we can afford to be that insular in Kamloops. I think we have to look at this as a community-wide problem and we need community-wide solutions. Uh, and I think over time, when you have something like that in your neighborhood, people are going to realize the advantage of being able to use a local facility that uh, you can walk to. So uh, I think that was uh, true with the discussion about the daycare as well as about the veterinary clinic eventually. Yeah, uh, daycare is definitely something I'm hearing a little bit more about the longer I've, hear, I've been here. Uh, I spoke with uh, Councillor Dale Bass, I believe, after UBCM, and she talked about the potential of having daycare space in a new uh, Park Crest uh, school whenever that uh, comes about as well. So definitely some creative solutions. I um, have about a minute left here, Ken. So I guess just uh, can you tell me a little bit about the Enbridge uh, um, presentation last night? Why was it important for council to get an update from them? You know, they, they come uh, pretty much every other year. Uh, they don't have facilities within Camels, but they have facilities down in Savannah, and they were providing us with some updates in terms of improvements that they're doing down there. As well as the fact that Enbridge was, uh, you know, uh, the company that had that line breach and uh, they had sort of a brownout in terms of their ability to supply natural gas to British Columbia last winter. And I think they wanted to update, uh, you know, the community about that. And uh, they seem to have that intact uh, now and, and they're back to uh, almost regular flows again. So as we approach the winter heating season, that's good information for the citizens of Camels to have. Perfect. Well, Ken, thanks so much for coming in. I always appreciate you taking the time and uh, filling us all in on what happened on uh, council meetings. And uh, is there another one next week? No, uh, we take uh, next week off due to the... Oh, Remembrance Day, of course. Yeah, so we'll speak to you in a couple of weeks then. All right, thanks so much for coming in. That was uh, Kamloops Mayor Ken Christian. Uh, coming up after the break here, I'll be talking a little bit about energy needs here in British Columbia. Yes, as we make that transition to more electric vehicles and having all electric fleets here in the province, we, of course, will need more energy in order to be able to run those vehicles. How much and how are we going to go about accessing that? We'll be talking with a student from the University of Victoria about all of that after this.
the voice of your community. Radio NL 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Here's Jeff Andreas. Welcome back to the Jeff Andreas Show, and thanks, as always, for tuning in. Uh, Climate change. I mean, we can't stop talking about it. Well, at least... I, I can't. I seem to have a subject on climate change every single day on my show, it feels like. Uh, governments are promising to take steps to help reverse the effects that uh, you know we're trying to deal with, and that includes a push to have 100% of all vehicles sold to be fully electric by 2040 here in British Columbia. Uh, that includes the goal of fully electric transit fleet by that date as well. Uh, that sounds like it will be sucking up a lot of energy as we all plug in our cars and trucks for a full recharge overnight or, or whenever we look to plug our vehicles in. And one University of Victoria student did a study to find out just how much power we will need to generate for that to work and and just how much we'll be using off the grid uh, in the coming years. That study is published in the November issue of the Applied Energy Journal, and I'm joined now by one of the authors of that study. He's a PhD student in the Department of Mechanical Engineering, Victor Keller. Victor, thanks so much for joining me. Hi, Jeff. Thank you for the invite. So, I mean, before we get into sort of the details here, I mean, you're from Brazil, from what I understand. You got a bachelor's degree in Liverpool, how the heck did you end up in BC? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. Um, <laughs> uh, when I was finishing my undergrad, I was looking for programs uh, for a master's degree, and I found a great one at the University of Victoria doing research on hydrogen fuel cells. And yeah, the rest is history. <laughs> right on. Well, obviously, you're able to find something that you're interested in, and that brings us to, to what we're talking about. So, um, you know, you're talking about uh, fuel cells, and, and this is a, it's not a new area of technology by any means. Fuel cells have been around for forever, but I guess, is there anything in particular that sort of drew you to this uh, area of study? What was it about renewable energy and, and things like fuel cells that, uh, you know, really gets you fired up and intrigued? So I was I've always been worried about uh, the impacts of climate change, and growing up, the more I studied about it, the more I realized how important it was to address it. And I guess I wanted to be to be working on something that would be part of the solution. So here I am. Right on. Well, yeah, this definitely has some some good information in the study you guys put out here. Um, and so let's sort of start getting into to what that study was all about. So, I mean, how were you able to try to figure out just how much power that we will need here in the province of BC here moving forward? I mean, that time seems like a pretty daunting task to try to figure out just sort of what we're going to be consuming in terms of our energy needs. How did you guys go about trying to tackle that uh, piece of information first and foremost? For sure. So, it's kind of like a, a big move and puzzle, and you just have to make some assumptions. But this is all based on, on there's a lot of science behind it. Um, this is based on expected uh, fuel efficiency gains from vehicles, um, expected GDP per capita population growth and stuff like that. And based on a bunch of these assumptions, we can start making forecasts to how much energy, how many vehicles, how much each person is going to be driving going forward into the future. Okay. Um, and, and you, I believe the year was 2050 or was it 2055? I can't remember now off the top of my head which year you were kind of targeting. Yeah, 2055. 2055. So what what was the reason for looking here uh, 36 years into the future? Or was was there a particular reason, or was that just sort of a, a generic year that you were looking at? There is a reason for that. It's because BC government announced recently that by 20, the year 2040, they want all new vehicles to be 
electric mm-hmm. or zero emission. Right. So if you think about that a, a normal passenger vehicle has a lifetime of between 10 to 15 years, that's the great majority of cars uh, get passed on up after that point. So that's why we model to the year 2055, because at that point, the stock has completely turned over to battery electric. Okay, so essentially, if I bought a gas-powered vehicle in 2039 and 15-year life cycle, then by 2055, I'm buying a fully electric vehicle. That that pretty much makes sense. Um, yeah. So, I mean, this seems like a, a pretty significant shift in in how we're going to be looking at consuming energy i mean when everything is going to be plugged in um i mean that's that's a lot more power that's going to have to come from the grid or come off the grid uh in order to to fulfill our needs when it comes to electricity so i mean is this in your mind achievable for the government to do in any short period of time like you obviously put the work in to figure out how much power we're going to need and um roughly from what i saw from your report i mean the province uh, can generate about 16 gigawatts a little less than that right now of power and the consumption would need to go over double that um i mean is that achievable how difficult is that going to be to accomplish in terms of being achievable i i, I think so um it might you might look at these numbers and think oh my god that is so much but we're constantly adding more generators to the system um and especially renewables have been exploding uh recently the uptake of wind and solar in particular have been increasing very fast now, there's politics behind it, and what's going to happen exactly is hard to tell, but in terms of it being achievable or not, I, I think so. Okay, I'm here with University of Victoria student Victor Keller. So, Victor, I mean, I guess how important is the renewable energy sources then to this? Like you said, there's a more renewable energy being produced uh, as we kind of move forward into the future, and that's going to be a significant way that we're going to produce power, um, not only in the short term, but of course in the long term. So when we're looking at a, a big increase in the reliance on the grid, I guess, can you just sort of give me any sort of a quantifiable number in terms of how uh, important renewable energy will be? Does it have to make up a certain percentage by the year 2055 of what we're generating? Yeah, so that that will have a huge impact on actually your emissions. So BC currently has policy on this. Uh, we have a target that 93% of the electricity generated within the province has to be renewable. And, and that's policy that's already in, in place now. So I actually did some modeling, assuming that the policy continue on and that the policy was removed and it was just whatever was the cheapest. Um, and between those two scenarios, there's big difference for sure. If that policy was to be removed, um, I think it was half of the emission reductions from electrification of transportation would be negated. Because you'd be using natural gas to produce the electricity, so you get a much lower bank for your buck. What is, uh, you know, you're someone who's been studying renewable energy and, and, and fuel cells specifically. So um, what what is the best way to go about generating power moving forward? I mean, this doesn't really necessarily have anything to do with your paper, but just out of curiosity, I mean, is it wind? Is it solar? Is it, uh, you know, uh, hydroelectric dams? Like what, what is the best way or cheapest way to produce power that's actually uh, achievable and sustainable? Do you have any ideas? 
Uh, yeah, that is a great question. And unfortunately, it's not one that has an easy answer. The answer would be different depending where in the world you are, uh, what time of the year it is, uh, what your system currently looks like. And that's why we, we use these fancy models to try and figure out, okay, if we're going to add another one unit of uh, generation, are we going to use solar, wind, or hydro, or whatever? Because something that might be great for BC is not necessarily something that is great for California and vice versa. Fair. That's a, that's a great so point. A bit of a wishy-washy uh, answer, but it's uh, there's no easy, simple answer for that. Yeah, and I guess just to follow up, I mean, that'd be safe to say probably when you're saying it's what's good for BC won't be good for California. I mean, that might be the same thing when you're saying what's good for Victoria might not necessarily be good for people here in Kamloops, right? Because they're pretty significant geographically as, as well, even though they're, they're close, they're still in the same province, uh, not necessarily the same landscape. For sure. And the weather is very different. And uh, Kamloops is a lot sunnier than Victoria. Victoria rains a lot. So something that might uh, work in, in one might not necessarily work for the other one. Okay. Um, and, and can I just get you to go over the numbers? Because I, I did a very probably poor rounding job when I was talking about the, the amount of power that uh, is generated now or is consumed now on, on average and how much will be needed. So just from, from your calculations, like where are we right now in terms of our consumption and where do you think we're going to have to be and, and what is the uh, capacity of the grid to handle that? So right now in BC, we consume about close to 60 terawatt hours of electricity per year. That is likely to increase over the next few decades, uh, regardless of electrification of transportation or not, because we expect population to grow and um, industry is a big consumer. So as uh, more industry industry picks up, demand is probably going to increase. But the findings from the paper was that if we are to electrify all modes of road transportation, and that is all passenger vehicles, all transit, all freight vehicles, all heavy-duty vehicles, we're looking at an additional 40% on top of that. So the demand by year 2055 could be something close to 100 terawatt hours. Wow. So, uh, I mean, obviously, the, I mean, the government, like you said, is they have all these policies in place to change the way we consume energy moving forward and produce energy moving forward. It's obviously going to take quite a bit of work to be able to achieve those figures, I would think. I mean, you said it, it is achievable and it's, it's beyond achievable uh, from, from what you've been able to calculate. But, uh, I mean, do you, is it quite a bit of work, I guess, to be able to make sure that a significant portion of that is on the renewable end of things and, and that we are able to supply all that power that's probably going to be quite a bit of work, do you think? I think it's a massive undertaking. Um, doubling your system capacity in uh, what's uh, 20, 30 years, it's a big task, but it doesn't mean that we shouldn't do it. And in terms of what the exact mix is going to be, um, the paper kind of goes into that a little bit. I think there's going to be a little bit of wind, a little bit of solar, and a whole lot of hydro in there. But I guess we're going to have to wait and see. 
For sure. Well, it's, uh, you know, people doing research like you that are going to be able to help us, uh, you know, create that path forward and, and find the best way to go about doing that. So thanks so much for coming on with me today and providing some information. Definitely some interesting stuff. And uh, we'll see kind of how the, the province is able to handle the changes in the way we consume electricity moving forward. So thanks so much for doing this, Victor. I really appreciate you taking the time and, and uh, enjoy the rest of your day. Absolutely. Thank you very much. That was Victor Keller from Victoria University talking renewable energy here in British Columbia. And he is studying how much energy we will be consuming in B.C. by the year 2055 when we factor in things such as a switch to fully electric vehicles. And how will the province go about producing that power? Of course, you can read that entire piece in the November issue of the Applied Energy Journal. Coming up after the break, are you suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder? Have you considered using cannabis to treat it? Well, I'll be chatting with a researcher from the B.C. Center of Substance Use after this. Your opinion. Call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Jeff Andreas on RadioNL.com. Welcome back here on November the 6th, and thanks, of course, for tuning in. New research suggests that cannabis may be helping Canadians cope with the effects of post-traumatic stress disorder. In an analysis of health survey data collected by Stats Canada from more than 24,000 Canadians, researchers from the BC Centre on Substance Use and the University of British Columbia found that people who have PTSD but do not medicate with cannabis are far more likely to suffer from severe depression and have suicidal thoughts than those who reported cannabis use over the past year. Uh, a study published in the Journal of Psychopharmacology, and it is the first to document the relationships between PTSD, cannabis use, and severe mental health outcomes in a sample representative of the Canadian population. I'm joined now by the lead author of that study. She's a student at the University of British Columbia who is exploring the health and social impacts of cannabis. Here's Stephanie Lake. Stephanie, thanks so much for taking the time today. Thanks for having me. So let me just start by asking why this was something you wanted to take a look into. What is it about PTSD and the overall you know, state of mental health and the connection to cannabis use that sort of piqued your interest? Well, we've really seen a rise in the number of Canadians who are using cannabis to uh, treat PTSD, whether that's um, under the authorized medical cannabis system or whether that's actually just kind of as um, like an ad hoc or kind of a yeah, like a self-management um, tool for treating their PTSD. And so there was really not a lot of research to understand um, what the potential uh, therapeutic benefit of cannabis for PTSD was. And so this is what we tried to do with this survey data. We hadn't seen any um, other research that used a large uh, complex survey data in this way. Yeah, so you're able to get data on more than 24,000 people. And I guess from, from that data, I guess what sort of conclusions were you able to derive from this study? I mean, you know, does cannabis have a positive impact on those suffering from PTSD? Well, based on the survey data, it was taken in uh, 2012, and it's what's called a cross-sectional study. So it's essentially just a kind of one-time snapshot of uh, a sample that can be re uh, considered representative of the population. And so what we can say based on the findings of the study is that um, we did detect a strong and uh, significant association between having PTSD and experiencing a major depressive episode or suicidal ideation among the cannabis non-using population. But we didn't detect the same association between PTSD and major depressive episodes and suicidal ideation in the cannabis-using population. 
So what we can derive from this data is that it's suggestive that there could be a therapeutic uh, benefit to cannabis use, although we really do have some limitations with this data that prevent us from saying that cannabis is truly helping people uh, cope with PTSD. And so this is why we need um, further kind of clinical trial experimental research that can randomize people with PTSD to having cannabis or not to be able to understand whether or not cannabis is truly helpful in this situation. Okay, so from this study, I guess you were more so looking at trends more than anything else before getting into some any hard data, if you will. Like if you wanted to look at more the scientific aspect of this, I guess you'd have to dig a little bit deeper and, and maybe have a few more resources at hand than, than just the, sort of a, this snapshot that you were able to look at. Exactly. This data is really helpful because it gives us a really good picture of what's going on in the population at a very kind of at a high level. So it's, it's self-reported data on having PTSD, on having major depressive episodes and having um, suicidal ideation. But we don't actually know what's going on kind of in the, the underlying kind of biological mechanisms that might be at play. And so this is why we really need to dig in with kind of rigorous scientific uh, experimental trials to really understand this. Okay. Now, from from your perspective, there being with the, you know the BC Center on Substance Use, um, you know, is, based on this data that you collected, I guess, is there any recommendation that you could make to people who maybe are suffering from some form of PTSD? Would you be able to say, look, uh, it looks like uh, cannabis use will actually have a beneficial outcome in helping you to to treat your issue and and make you feel a little bit uh, better, if you will? I mean, are, were you able to sort of draw any conclusion where you would feel comfortable saying to someone who is suffering from post traumatic stress disorder that cannabis use may be a way to deal with that? I think because this study was conducted at a population level, it's really hard to kind of um, treat uh, an individual kind of recommendation. And so what I would say based on the findings of this study is that it, it offers a promising signal to people who are suffering from PTSD who may have already started uh, trying cannabis or who might be interested in trying to use cannabis to, to cope with some of their symptoms. But I would still caution against um, using this study as the one kind of um, uh, evidence that they need to say that they should be using cannabis. It's always a conversation that they probably should be having with a healthcare professional who would be able to provide further um, guidance on potential drug-drug interactions and things like this. So what's next, I guess? You know, you're able to use this this study as a way to sort of uh, look at the uh, connection between PTSD and the use of cannabis and sort of what the relationship might be. Um, but, you know, that's obviously, uh, you weren't able to draw any finite conclusions as a result. So what what's next? I mean, can you use the study to sort of prove to yourself that there is more work that needs to be done to find out what the exact relationship is on mental health when using cannabis and having PTSD and, and how those two marry each other? Is, is I guess, what what's next here in order to find out how that relationship exists. So I think what this study does, it, it really sets the stage for future work uh, in this area. So it really shines a light on PTSD as an area of research focus for cannabis and cannabinoids. Um, so we do have a growing kind of um, scientific uh, interest in studying cannabis and we need to make sure that PTSD and uh, depression and suicidal uh, outcomes are, are included in this kind of uh, new area of focus for cannabis science. Uh, I assume that's something that you might be hoping to be a part of. Of course, yes, definitely. And I guess when you're when you're looking at that, um, I mean, probably the term cannabis is almost maybe a little too vague because you probably want to start looking at the different components of cannabis. You know, whether it be you know CBD or or the the THC side of things. I'm sure it's not the the psychoactive portion that's going to necessarily help people with PTSD. So, um, you know, I guess quite a bit of work to do to really understand how this works. 
Yeah, and this data that we had, it was, again, uh, quite broad. It was collected in 2012, so that's before legalization, before often folks knew uh, exactly what they were taking when they were taking cannabis. And so now that cannabis is legal, we are able to finally be able to ask some of these questions. It'll really help us develop um, a better focus on what uh, potential uh, strains and products and kind of most administration and different treatment regimens might be helpful if if we do find uh, that cannabis and cannabinoids uh, could be helpful in treating PTSD. Any idea when that work could potentially begin? Well, right now there is a clinical trial underway at UBC. It's got a number of arms across the province. Um, so right now they're collecting data. Um, as for a timeline, I, I can't give you, a, I don't know a firm timeline. Um, so those results are pending. We can expect to see eventually results of a clinical trial, an experimental trial uh, on cannabis for PTSD. And so we really look forward to being able to see what those findings show and take it from there in order to kind of figure out what, what needs to happen next. Good stuff, Stephanie. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to join me today. I really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, definitely be looking forward to the results of, of that next uh, you know portion of this study and, and kind of seeing what the results are moving forward. So maybe I'll have you back on again here in the future. But uh, as far as today, thanks so much for taking the time. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Awesome. That was Stephanie Lake, lead author of a study published in the Journal of Psychopharmacology that examines the relationship between PTSD, cannabis use, and severe mental health outcomes. Well, that about wraps things up for me here today. I want to thank all my guests one more time for joining me. And of course, a big thank you to all of you for listening. And remember, whether you join me here for a short while or a long while, just know I enjoyed our time while it lasted. I'll be back here tomorrow at 9. <laughs>